Section 8 of The Seven Follies of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Evans, Urbana, Illinois. The Seven Follies of Science by John Finn. Section 8 Perpetual Motion Fallacies. Fallacies are distinguished from absurdities on the one hand and from frauds on the other by the fact that without any intentionally fraudulent contrivances on the part of the inventor, they seem to produce results which have a tendency to afford to certain enthusiasts a basis of hope in the direction of perpetual motion, although usually not under that name, for that is always explicitly disclaimed by the promoters. The most notable instance of this class in recent times was the application of liquid air as a source of power, the claim having actually been made by some of the advocates of this fallacy that a steamship starting from New York with 1,000 gallons of liquid air could not only cross the Atlantic at full speed, but could reach the other side with more than 1,000 gallons of liquid air on board. The power required to drive the vessel and to liquefy the surplus air being all obtained during the passage by utilizing the original quantity of liquid air that had been furnished in the first place. That this was equivalent to perpetual motion, pure and simple, was obvious even to those who were least familiar with such subjects, though the idea of calling it perpetual motion was sternly repudiated by all concerned, the term perpetual motion having become thoroughly offensive to the ears of common-sense people, and consequently tending to cast doubt over any enterprise to which it might be applied. That liquid air is a real and wonderful discovery, and that for a certain small range of purposes it will prove highly useful, cannot be doubted by those who have seen and handled it, and are familiar with its properties, but that it will ever be successfully used as an economical source of mechanical power is, to say the least, very improbable that a small quantity of the liquid is capable of doing an enormous amount of work, and that, under some conditions, there is apparently more power developed than was originally required to liquefy the air, is undoubtedly true. But when a careful quantitative examination is made of the outgo and the income of energy, it will be found in this, as in every similar case, that instead of a gain, there is a very decided and serious loss. The correct explanation of the fallacy was published in the Scientific American by the late Dr. Henry Morton, president of the Stevens Institute, and the same explanation and exposure were made by the writer nearly 50 years ago in the case of a very similar enterprise. The form of the fallacy in both cases is so similar and so interesting that I shall make no apology for giving the details. About the year 1853 or 1854, Two ingenious mechanics of Rochester in Lye conceived the idea that by using some liquid more volatile than water, a great saving might be effected in the cost of running an engine. At that time, gasoline and benzene were unknown in commerce, and the same was true in regard to bisulfide of carbon. But as the process of manufacturing the latter was simple, and the sources of supply were cheap and apparently unlimited, they adopted that liquid. The name of one of these inventors was Hughes, and that of the other was Hill, and it would seem that they had made the invention independently of the other. They had a fierce conflict over the patent, 
but this does not concern us except to this extent, that the records of the case may therefore be found in the archives of the Patent Office at Washington, D.C. Hughes was backed by the wealth of a well-known lawyer of Rochester, whose son subsequently occupied a high office in the state of New York, and he constructed a beautiful little steam engine and boiler, made of the very finest materials and with such skill and accuracy that it gave out a very considerable amount of power in proportion to its size. The source of heat was a series of lamps, fed, I think, with lard oil. This was before the days of kerosene. And the exhibition test consisted in first filling the boiler with water and noting the time that it took to get up a certain steam pressure as shown by the gauge. After this test, bisulfide of carbon was added to the water, and the time and pressure were noted. The difference was, of course, remarkable, and altogether in favor of the new liquid. The exhaust was carried into a vessel of cold water, and, as bisulfide of carbon is very easily condensed and very heavy, almost the entire quantity used was recovered and used over and over again. But to the uninstructed onlooker, the most remarkable part of the exhibition was when the steam pressure was so far lowered that the engine revolved very slowly, and then, on a little bisulfide being injected into the boiler, the pressure would at once rise, and the engine would work with great rapidity. This seemed almost like magic. The same experiment was tried on an engine of 12 horsepower, and with a like result. When the steam pressure had fallen so far that the engine began to move quite slowly, a quantity of the bisulfide would be injected into the boiler, and the pressure would at once rise. The engine would move with renewed vigor, and the flywheel would revolve with startling velocity. All this was seen over and over again by myself and others. At that time, the writer, then quite a young man, had just recovered from a very severe illness and was making a living by teaching mechanical drawing and making drawings for inventors and others. And in the course of business, he was brought into contact with some parties who thought of investing in the new and apparently wonderful invention. They employed him to examine it and give an opinion as to its value. After careful consideration and as thorough a calculation as the data then at command would allow, he showed his clients that the test which had been exhibited to them proved nothing, and that if a clear proof of the value of the invention was to be given, it must be after a run of many hours and not of a few minutes, and against a properly adjusted load, the amount of which had been carefully ascertained. This test was never made, or if made, the results were not communicated to the prospective purchasers. The negotiations fell through, and the invention which was to have revolutionized our mechanical industries fell into innocuous desuetude. That the inventors were honest, I have no doubt. They were themselves deceived when they saw the engine start off with tremendous velocity as soon as a little bisulfide of carbon was injected into the boiler, and they failed to see that this spurt, if I may use the expression, was simply due to a draft upon capital previously stored up. The capacity of bisulfide of carbon for heat is quite low when compared with that of water. Its vaporizing point is also much lower. Consequently, an ordinary boiler full of hot water contains enough heat to vaporize a considerable quantity of bisulfide of carbon at a pretty high pressure. In even a still greater measure, the same is true of liquid air and this was the underlying fallacy in the case of the tests made with liquid air motors. Frauds 
But while the inventors of these schemes may have been honest, there is another class who deliberately set out to perpetrate a fraud. Their machines work, and work well, but there is always some concealed source of power which causes them to move. As a general rule, such inventors form a company or corporation of unlimited lie-ability, as de Morgan phrases it, and then they proceed by means of flaring prospectuses and liberal advertising to gather in the dupes who are attracted by their seductive promises of enormous returns for a very small outlay. Perhaps the most widely known of these fraudulent schemes of recent years was the notorious Keeley Motor, the originator of which managed to hoodwink a respectable old lady and to draw from her enormous supplies of cash. At his death, however, the absolutely fraudulent nature of his contrivances was fully disclosed, and nothing more has been heard of his alleged discovery. But, while he lived and was able to put forward claims based upon some apparent results, he found plenty of fools who accepted the idea that there is nothing impossible to science. It is true that the Keeley motor was examined by several committees, and some very respectable gentlemen acted in such a way as to give a seeming endorsement of the scheme. But it must not be supposed for an instant that any well-educated engineers and scientific men were deceived by Mr. Keeley's nonsense. The very fact that he refused to allow a complete examination of his machine by intelligent practical men ought to have been enough to condemn his scheme, for if he had really made the discovery which he claimed there would have been no difficulty in proving it practically and thoroughly, and then he might have formed company after company that would have rewarded him with wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. The Keeley motor was not put forward as a perpetual motion. In these days, none of these schemes is admitted to be a perpetual motion, for that term has now become exceedingly offensive and would condemn any invention. But the result is the same in the end, and the whole history of perpetual motion is permeated with frauds of this kind, some of them having been so simple that they were obvious even to the most unskilled observer, while others were exceedingly complicated and most ingeniously concealed. Many years ago, a number of these fraudulent perpetual motion machines were manufactured in America and sent over to Great Britain for exhibition, and quite a lucrative business was done by showing them in various towns. But the fraud was soon detected, and the British police then made it too warm for these swindlers. Mr. Dirks, in his Perpetual Mobile, has given accounts of quite a number of these impostures. The following are some of the most notable. M. Pop of Tübingen tells of a clock made by M. Geiser, which was an admirable piece of mechanism and seemed to have solved this great problem in an ingenious and simple manner, but it deceived only for a time. When thoroughly examined inwardly and outwardly, some time after his death, it was found that the center prop supporting its cylinders contained cleverly constructed hidden clockwork wound up by inserting a key in a small hole under the second hand. Another case was that of a man named Adams, who exhibited, for eight or nine days, his pretended perpetual motion in a town in England, and took in the natives for fifty or sixty pounds. Accident, however, led to a discovery of the imposture. A gentleman, viewing the machine, took hold of the wheel or trundle and lifted it up a little which probably disengaged the wheels that connected the hidden machinery in the plinth, 
and immediately he heard a sound similar to that of a watch when the spring is running down. The owner was in great anger, and directly put the wheel into its proper position, and the machine again went around as before. The circumstance was mentioned to an intelligent person, who determined to find out and expose the imposture. He took with him a friend to view the machine, and they seated themselves one on each side of the table upon which the machine was placed. They then took hold of the wheel and trundle, and lifted them up, there being some play in the pivots. Immediately, the hidden spring began to run down, and they continued to hold the machine in spite of the endeavors of the owner to prevent them. When the spring had run down, they placed the machine again on the table, and offered the owner fifty pounds if it could then set itself going. But, notwithstanding his fingering and pushing, it remained motionless. A constable was sent for, the impostor went before a magistrate, and there signed a paper confessing his perpetual motion to be a cheat. In the Mechanics Magazine, volume 46, is an account of a perpetual motion constructed by one Redhofer of Pennsylvania, which obtained sufficient notoriety to induce the legislature to appoint a committee to inquire into its merits. The attention of Mr. Lukens was turned to the subject, and although the actual moving cause was not discovered, yet the deception was so ingeniously imitated in a machine of similar appearance, made by him and moved by a spring so well concealed that the deceiver himself was deceived, and Redhofer was induced to believe that Mr. Lukens had been successful in obtaining a moving power in some way in which he himself had failed when he had produced a machine so plausible in appearance as to deceive the public. Instances of a similar kind might be multiplied indefinitely. The experienced mechanic who reads the descriptions here given of the various devices which have been proposed for the construction of a perpetual motion machine must be struck with the childish simplicity of the plans which have been offered, and those who will search the pages of the mechanical journals of the last century or who will examine the two closely printed volumes in which Mr. Dirks has collected almost everything of the kind, will be astonished at the sameness which prevails amongst the offerings of these would-be inventors. Amongst the hundreds, or perhaps thousands, of contrivances which have been described, there is probably not more than a dozen kinds which differ radically from each other, the same arrangement having been invented and reinvented over and over again. And one of the strange features of the case is that successive inventors seem to take no note of the failure of those predecessors who have brought forward precisely the same combination of parts under a very slightly different form. It is true that we occasionally find a very elaborate and apparently complicated machine, but in such cases it will be found, on close examination, to owe its apparent complexity to a mere multiplication of parts. No real inventive ingenuity is exhibited in any case. Another singular characteristic of almost all those who have devoted themselves to the search for a perpetual motion is their absolute confidence in the success of the plans which they have brought forth. So confident are they in the soundness of their views and so sure of the success of their schemes that they do not even take the trouble to test their plans, but announce them as accomplished facts and publish their sketches and descriptions as if the machine was already working without a hitch. Indeed, 
so far was one inventor carried away with this feeling of confidence in the success of his machine that he no longer allowed himself to be troubled with any doubts as to the machine's going, but was greatly puzzled as to what means he should take to stop it after it had been set in motion. These facts, which are well known to all who have been brought into contact with this class of minds, explain many otherwise puzzling circumstances, and enable us to place a proper value on assertions which, if not made so positively and by such apparently good authority, would be at once condemned as deliberate falsehoods. That falsehood, pure and simple, has formed the basis of a good many claims of this kind. There can be no doubt. But at the same time, it's probable that some of the claimants really deceived themselves and attributed to causes other than radical errors of theory the fact that their machines would not continue to move. While many have claimed the actual invention of a perpetual motion, it is very certain that not one has ever succeeded. How, then, are we to explain the statements which have been made in regard to Orpheus and the claims of the Marquis of Worcester? For both of these men, it is claimed that they constructed wheels which were capable of moving perpetually, and apparently strong testimony is offered in support of these assertions. In the famous Century of Inventions, published by the Marquis in 1663, four years before his death, the celebrated 56th article reads as follows, verbatim et literatum, To provide and make that all the weights of the descending side of a wheel shall be perpetually further from the center than those of the mounting side, and yet equal in number and heft to the one side as the other. A most incredible thing, if not seen, but tried before the late king of blessed memory in the tower, by my directions, two extraordinary ambassadors accompanying his majesty, and the Duke of Richmond and Duke Hamilton, with most of the court attending him. The wheel was fourteen foot over and forty weights of fifty pounds apiece. Sir William Balfour, then lieutenant of the tower, can justify it, with several others. They all saw that no sooner these great weights passed the diameter line of the lower side but they hung a foot further from the center, nor no sooner passed the diameter line of the upper side, but they hung a foot nearer. Be pleased to judge the consequence. Such is the account given by the Marquis himself, and that he exhibited such a wheel at the time and place which he names, I have not the least doubt, and that some of the weights on one side hung a foot further from the center than did weights on the other side is also no doubt true, but... As the judging of the consequences left to ourselves, we know that after the first impulse given to it had been expended, the wheel would simply stand still, unless kept in motion by some external force. Mr. Dirks, in his Life, Times, and Scientific Labors of the Second Marquis of Worcester, gives an engraving of a wheel which complies with all of the conditions laid down by the Marquis, and which is thus described. Let the annexed diagram figure 17, represent a wheel of 14 feet in diameter, having 40 spokes, 7 feet each, and with an inner rim coinciding with the periphery, at 1 foot distance all round. Next, provide 40 balls or weights, hanging in the center of cords or chains 2 feet long. Now, fasten one end of this cord at the top 
of the center spoke C, and the other end of the cord to the next right-hand spoke one foot below the upper end, or on the inner ring. Proceed in a like manner with every other spoke in succession, and it will be found that, at A, the cord will have the position shown outside the wheel, while at B, C, and D, it will also take the respective positions, as shown on the outside. The result in this case will be that all the weights on the side A, C, D hang to the great or outer circle, while on the side B, C, D, all the weights are suspended from the lesser or inner circle. And if we reverse the motion of the wheel, turning it from the right to the left hand, we shall reverse these positions also, the lower end of the cord sliding into a groove towards the left hand spoke, but without the wheel having any tendency to move of itself. But it is quite as likely that the wheel constructed by the Marquis was like one of the overbalancing wheels described at the beginning of this article. It is upon this scantling that has been based the claim that the Marquis really invented a perpetual motion, but to those who have seen much of inventors of this kind, the discrepancy between the suggested claim made by the Marquis and what we know must have been the actual results is easily explained. The Marquis felt sure that the thing ought to work, and the excuse for its not doing so was probably the imperfect manner in which the wheel was made. Only put a little better work on it, says the inventor, and it will go. Kaspar Kaltoff, mechanician to the Marquis, probably got the wheel up in a hurry so as to exhibit it on the occasion of the king's visit to the tower. If he only had had a little more time, he would have made a machine that would have worked. I have heard the same excuse under almost the same circumstances scores of times. The case of Orphirius was very different. The real name of this inventor was Jean-Ernest Elie Besler, and he is said to have manufactured the name Orphirius by placing his own name between two lines of letters and picking out alternate letters above and below. He was educated for the church, but turned his attention to mechanics and became an expert clockmaker. His character, as given by his contemporaries, was fickle, tricky, and irascible. Having devised a scheme for perpetual motion, he constructed several wheels which he claimed to be self-moving. The last one which he made was 12 feet in diameter and 14 inches deep, the material being light pine boards covered with waxed cloth to conceal the mechanism. The axle was 8 inches thick, thus affording abundant space for concealed machinery. This wheel was submitted to the Landgrave of Hesse, who had it placed in a room which was then locked, and the lock secured with the Landgrave's own seal. At the end of forty days it was found to be still running. Professors Gravesand, having been employed by the Landgrave to make an examination and pronounce upon its merits, he endeavored to perform his work thoroughly. This so irritated Orpheus that the latter broke the machine in pieces and left on the wall a writing stating that he had been driven to do this by the impertinent curiosity of the professor. I have no doubt that this was a clear case of fraud and that the wheel was driven by some mechanism concealed in the huge axle. As already stated, Orpheus was at one time a clockmaker. Now clocks have been made to go for a whole year without having to be rewound, so that forty days was not a very long time for the apparatus to keep in motion. Professor's Gravesend seems to have had some faith in the invention, 
but then we must remember that it would not have been very difficult to deceive an honest old professor whose confidence in humanity was probably unbounded. The crowning argument against the genuineness of the motion was the fact that the inventor refused to allow a thorough examination. Although a wealthy patron stood ready with a large reward if the machine could be proved to be what was claimed. And now comes up the question which has arisen in regard to other problems and will recur again and again to the end of the chapter. Is a perpetual motion machine one of the scientific impossibilities? The answer to this question lies in the fact that there is no principle more thoroughly established than that that no combination of machinery can create energy. So far as our present knowledge of nature goes, we might as well try to create matter as to create energy, and the creation of energy is essential to the successful working of a perpetual motion machine, because some power must always be lost through friction and other resistances, and must be supplied from some source the machine is to keep on moving. And since the law of the conservation of energy makes it positive that no more power can be given out by a machine than was originally supplied to it, it seems as certain as anything can be that the construction of a perpetual motion machine is one of the impossibilities. End of section 8